0: good morning if you have your bibles turn to jeremiah 29 1 through 9 and let me just add my welcome to our partners we're so grateful that you are worshiping with us today many of you uh, participated in the panel discussions that we had Uh, we just uh, love having you here and so grateful that you would honor our presence today we uh, you guys are our heroes in so many ways and uh, thank you for including us in your ministries, and um, just pray that the Lord would continue to bless you and pour out His, His strength to you as you minister during this time. We're glad to, glad to have you. In giving you a little context for the passage in Jeremiah 29, these are very challenging days in the life of Israel. The Babylonians are the dominant world power of the time, and under Nebuchadnezzar they had conquered Judah and devastated Jerusalem a second time, and this is their strategy. They want to to weaken Judah by deporting the leaders and the brightest youth from Jerusalem to Babylon and assimilate them into their culture. The goal being to reshape this generation of exiles to be Babylonians instead of Israelites. Now these exiles found themselves in a different culture cut off from the forces that had shaped their lives. There was no temple. There was no worship. Many of them were cut off from the families that they had grown up with. I'm sure that they felt often, every day as they awakened, disoriented, asking questions like, how do we raise a family in this? How do we practice our faith here? And if that wasn't enough, if there weren't enough confusion going on in Babylon, there were also false prophets in the midst of Israel. They were giving Israel false hope. They were telling them that they would only be in this exile for about two years. So consistently, the Israelites had two questions that were on their mind. How long are we gonna be in this transition? And who are we supposed to listen to? The times were overwhelming, the culture was confusing, and the voices were divisive. Sounds a lot like 2020, doesn't it? Well, what does the word of the Lord have to say? Thankfully, in the midst of all this confusion comes a word from the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah now was still in Jerusalem, but he sends the Jewish exiles a a letter. And in this letter, he cuts through the fog of their confusion, and he gives the exiles clear direction as to how they might navigate forward. And the question begins to emerge for God's people, are they going to obey the word of the Lord and adapt to their circumstances, or are they going to continue to live in their disobedience? And as we look at this passage, he tells them three things in this passage that taken together really provide a missional compass for the church to advance God's kingdom in our city. Let's read God's Word together, Jeremiah 29, 1-9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon.' For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in thanksgiving for giving us your word. Lord, today, would you speak to us? Would you give us a sense of your presence? And would you expand our hearts for your city? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the year 1940, the Allied soldiers from many different countries found themselves stranded on the beaches in Normandy in northern, in northern France, They were caught between two immovable objects. On one side was the the English Channel. On the other side was the fast-moving German army uh, approaching. And when the British began to realize that the the troops were not— they didn't have the resources to evacuate the troops from the beaches, they started or they launched an Operation Dynamo which mobilized the the civilians who in turn marshaled their own boats to accomplish this amazing operation. Now, you know the the end of the story. About 1,000 boats were mobilized and over 340,000 troops were evacuated. It was an amazing story of a rescue operation with that in the backdrop, I want us to, to, to think about this passage and think about what our mission here at Second. Now obviously Dunkirk had its own set of unique circumstances, but there are some takeaways here that we can see reflected in our own efforts of God's kingdom being realized here in our own city. Let me mention a few of those. First of all, notice that there was a sense of urgency. Here in Memphis, people are not stranded on beaches, but they're stranded all over our city apart from Christ. They are harassed and helpless. They're distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And there's got to be a a sense of urgency as we approach our mission. Notice here that the lay people are the ones that made the difference. It was the normal uh, non-professional, it was the normal citizens who were mobilized. And as we think about our mission to our city, it's going to be the normal members, the volunteers of our churches that are gonna make a difference in the mission of our city. Also notice how the warfare or the wartime lens changed their perspectives. particularly it changed their way in which they view their, their possessions. What was normally pleasure boats, yachts and, and John boats and fishing boats and things like this, were now vessels of mission. They were vessels for rescue. Tug boats and other kinds of boats were now vessels that carry wounded soldiers. Looking at this, at their possessions through a wartime mentality changed how they viewed their possessions. But finally, there was a coordinated effort it wasn't just a bunch of individual boats going out to rescue these men. They pulled together and they coordinated their efforts and, and they formed a flotilla, literally, that brought back these evacuees. And as we think about our city, our churches and our partners and other ministries are going to have to coordinate and work together to see God's shalom brought to our city. Now, we know that the city is very complex. It's different than the one, the story I just described. It's layered with with communities. It's got different cultures in it, and ethnicities, and beliefs, and languages. But as we approach the text today, I'd like for us to think about this passage and how it would help us answer the following question. Here's the question. If we could mobilize thousands of Christians in the city of Memphis for the sake of the kingdom over the next 20 years, what could they do that would really make a difference? Let me ask it again. If we could mobilize thousands of Christians into the city of Memphis for the sake of the kingdom over the next 20 years, what could they do that would really make a difference? I think this passage gives us some insight here. Let's look in the text and see how the Lord... (coughs) instructed his exiles as they contemplated their relationship with his Babylonian city. First of all, he sent them to live as resident sojourners. God's people were to be resident sojourners. (coughs) Excuse me. As sojourners, here's what we mean by this. Simply someone who is living in a place that is not their permanent home. And the New Testament actually expands this idea. Uh, The idea is is that as Christians, we are always exiles. We're sojourners because we're citizens in heaven. But on earth, we live out heaven's values and heaven's standards in the neighborhood, in the places that God uh, plants us, in this city, in that neighborhood, in this country, or that continent. This brings us to the idea of of residence. Now the Israelites are to become residents because Babylon is where God sent them to live. Now he develops that out in the passage here in two ways. First of all, he talks about the fact that you are where you are because I sent you here. But also he tells them to settle down in Babylon and establish a presence in the city. Let's talk about those for a minute. First of all, you are where you are because I sent you here. It's interesting that on one hand in verse 1, it says that that Nebuchadnezzar actually sent them to Babylon. But then as you look in verses 4 and 7, it says twice that the Lord is the one that sent you. What's going on here? Did Nebuchadnezzar send them or, or did the Lord send them? Here's what he's saying here. He's saying that Nebuchadnezzar was God's agent to get them there, but God is the one who brought them to Babylon. He's the one in control. And the Israelites are there because the Lord has sent them there. Now, what is implicit in this calling is that God has a purpose for them being there. And it's twofold. One, this is really a season of pruning and refining. Israel. They had turned their back on God for years in disobedience, and God in response has exiled them here. He sent Nebuchadnezzar and his army to bring them into exile here, and he's bringing them to a point of repentance. Uh, Another way of saying it is God is restoring his relationship with them. But secondly, there's another part of the purpose that God has for them here, and it is this, that he's reestablishing Israel's mission to the Gentile nations by mobilizing them as residents into the city in which he has sent them. So as residents, therefore, they are to settle down in Babylon and establish a presence in the city. Look at verses 5 and 6. Here's how Jeremiah develops this. Jeremiah tells them to build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, and even grandchildren. That's three generations. Now, this would have been really frustrating for the Israelites. They would have been frustrating to hear this because because the the prophets— Had been hearing all along, you're only going to be here for for a couple of days. And then Jeremiah completely says something different. As a matter of fact, when you get down to verse 10, which we didn't read, he says, You're actually going to be here for the long haul. You're going to be here for 70 years. That's a long time. So while Israel may be frustrated to hear this, here's the point God, in His grace and through this exile, is restoring relationship or Israel to a right relationship with him and renewing their mission to the nations. He's reminding them that he has plans for them, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give them a future and a hope. He's also weaving them into the social fabric of this city to prepare a presence for them. Now, look at the language here. Go back to verse 5 and 6 here. No- notice again the language. Building, planting, marrying, having children and grandchildren. Multiply, increase the num- in number. This is, he's reminding them of, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Where the Lord says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subduing. In a real sense, in His grace, God is bringing them back to the garden. Simply put, He's giving them a fresh start. And the question is, are they going to make the most of their exile? Now, we could probably stop here and make a couple of applications to ourselves because we're in the midst of a pandemic, and there's a lot of characteristics of the exile that exist in this pandemic. And so just as God is calling Israel to make the most of their exile to renew their relationship with the Lord and their mission to the nations, could it be that He's giving us the opportunity to do the same thing? As resident or, uh, journey uh, sojourners, how can we make the most of our pandemic? There's a real temptation for Israel here to just simply put their lives on hold, especially if they're thinking they're going to be here for a couple of years. There's a real temptation for us in a very unhealthy way also to put our lives on hold. I'm not talking about the wisdom and social distancing. We have to adapt. We have to adjust. But there is a temptation to just put our lives on hold. And we have to be careful. So what can we do? Let me suggest three things based on the passage here. One, could this be an opportunity or a season that we could take advantage of To renew our relationships with the Lord. You know, I have found over the years that when I get in chaotic times or confusing times, one of the best things I can do is go back to the basics. Go back to the essentials. Go back to my first love, my relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember right after I graduated from college, I went through a very lonely, isolated time um, I had just graduated from college, so there was that transition. I would come on staff with Campus Outreach. They kind of parachuted me into this new college. As a matter of fact, um, we, uh, uh, they really winded down me at Shoney's uh, all you could eat breakfast on Saturday morning and asked me to be there on Monday. I was spending a lot of my time sharing faith who uh, didn't really want to hear it. I didn't have a place to live, so I'd share my faith with someone, and I'd ask if I could sleep on the floor at night. And I just remember thinking to myself, my parents had, had moved, my family had moved to North Carolina. Lord, I am just alone. You have It feels like you have stripped me of most everything in my life. And I remember laying in a dorm room one night at about 3 a.m. in the morning, and I'm writing in my journal, and I'm writing about all the things that it feels like the Lord has stripped me of, and then I just underline it at the bottom, and, and I realize that the one thing I've got is my relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that was a sweet time. As a matter of fact, I affectionately call that time the just Jesus season in my life. And it was a sweet season. Often I find myself trying to get back to that season of life. So a season of renewal in our relationship with God. But also, also, this could be a season of renewal in our mission to the city. We could think about who are some of the relationships that we have outside the church we can think about where has God established me in my work, in my activities, and where I serve, and, and how could I partner with our ministry partners here? This is a time that we can reflect and hit the reset button on how we think about our lives and carrying that out in mission. So the Lord has called us to be resident sojourners, but also we see here in this passage that He calls us to seek the flourishing of the city. There's two words here that I want to develop out a little bit to to make the the point. It's welfare and seek. Many of you know that the the word welfare here in the Hebrew is the word shalom. Um, And the Lord tells us to seek the shalom or the welfare of the city. This is commonly translated as peace peace or prosperity, or, or welfare. And it's actually used three times in this verse, every time being welfare, welfare in verse seven. But it means completeness, peace, wholeness, and, and my favorite, uh, flourishing. Not just one area of a person's life, but in all areas of their lives. So, at the heart of Shalom, though, is a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the only way ultimately for people to experience the shalom that we're talking about here is through the gospel. But let's look at this word. Most of the time we focus on the idea of shalom, and that's really important here in this passage. But I want to focus here and develop the rest of this out around the word seek. In the, in the Hebrew, this just comes from the word derash. And it's a very strong word. It's a very strong verb, as a matter of fact. It's just the opposite of being passive. And so it's translated here as as seek and pursue. But really, as you look at the word more closely, there's three characteristics that describe the way that we're supposed to pursue shalom for our city. The first one is, it's to be a frequent pursuit. Our pursuit of shalom is to be daily. It's to be a lifestyle. It's not an occasional thing that we participate in. Secondly, it's a a diligent pursuit. It means that, that there's an earnest effort involved. There's got to be an intensity involved. It's the opposite of apathy. So when we pursue shalom for the people in our city, we do it with all of our hearts. We do it with all of our lives. There's a diligent pursuit there. But finally, there's a careful pursuit. Seeking shalom for people in our city requires thoughtful engagement. It requires us to be in relationships long enough to understand a person's need and carefully think through the ways that would be most helpful to bring shalom to this person's life. So, As we think about this and we think about Israel, here's what they would have been sober to as they would have understood this word in the way to seek shalom. That instead of just a simple activity, what they're beginning to realize that it's central as to why God has them there. It's their mission. Now one of the things I love literally about this word Duresh is that it, it literally means this to tread to the point of making a well-worn path. So how do we approach bringing shalom to our city? We are to wear out a path of bringing shalom to our neighbors. We are to walk down that path so frequently and with so much intensity, it wears out all the grass. So we seek shalom and we build a path of shalom to our city. Now, here's the interesting thing here is that the path that leads to others' flourishing is the same path that will lead to your flourishing and my flourishing. Look in verse seven, the last part. It says this for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Isn't this just like the manifold wisdom of God to tie our welfare? into the welfare of the people outside of our church. So, we build a path of shalom. Let me summarize it like this. As as resident aliens, the Lord reminds Israel here that they are going to be for a while and they're to make their home here. Obviously, we've already said they'd be pretty frustrated, and if you could hear their thoughts, they would probably be saying something like this. So what are we supposed to do here? And here's what the Lord says. You're to seek, you're to build a path of shalom to the city. And they would have probably been thinking, Lord, I don't want to do this. They're our enemies. We hate these people. And the Lord would have said... I know, and that's exactly why I want you to pray for them. And that leads to our third point here. We are to pray for their shalom. We are to pray for their well-being. As resident sojourners, we should pray for the city. And let me give you three reasons that I see here in the passage on why we should do that. Number one reason why we should pray for the city. Because heavenly weapons are more powerful than earthly weapons. Think about that for a second. What God is, is, is telling us here, as sojourners, as citizens of heaven, we have weapons that the earth does not know about. We're not coming ill-prepared. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says, for though we live in this world, we're residents, we do not wage war as the world does. Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Let me share with you a, a quick story. I remember years ago when my two oldest, Grant and Sarah, Grant being the oldest, Sarah being the second We were sitting in the living room, they were over in the corner and they were playing cards together. I couldn't tell exactly what kind of card game they were telling what they were playing. But I could tell that Sarah was crushing Grant because Grant was ticked off, he was frustrated. And so I started watching them as they played and every time they would, Sarah would defeat Grant in a game, she would turn around and face the opposite direction. I couldn't really tell what she was doing. And after doing that about three times, Grant stands up in the middle of the room and said, Sarah, you're cheating. It's like, Grant, what am I doing? I saw what you were doing. You were praying to the Lord that you would win the game. And Sarah, Sarah's like, good grief. You you could be praying also. It's like, Sarah, that's cheating. You know, as I've reflected on that story, only leave it to our little children, both of them having the faith of a child. Felt like the real difference in the game would be prayer, for us to have this kind of mindset in this heart about praying. We need more cheaters and unfair weaponizers like that, people who will bring prayer into the battle. Heavenly weapons are more powerful than earthly weapons. The second reason we should pray is the Lord is compassionate, and He transforms cities. Let me just remind you of the story of Jonah. We all know that story. Jonah was told by the Lord, go to Nineveh. The problem is, is that Nineveh, just like these Babylonians, are their enemies. They've done atrocities to their people. And so he goes in the opposite direction. God sends a fish, gobbles him up, and sends him back to Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked place. And Jonah reluctantly goes and he preaches the message that God has given him. And lo and behold, what does God do? He turns the city upside down and he brings them to repentance. And Jonah is frustrated. And and then he gives the reason why he's frustrated. Listen to what he says here in Jonah chapter 4. He says, Lord, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew because you were so good that if I went over there and preached this message, that because of this, that you would cause them to repent. The very reason Jonah didn't want to go to the city is the very reason that should inspire us to pray because the Lord is compassionate because He's good, He's merciful, and He cares about our city. It's interesting, you really see the heart of the Lord later in that passage as the the chapter ends and the book of Jonah comes to a conclusion. He responds to Jonah, the Lord responds to Jonah. Here's what He said. He says, and should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. May the Lord have Memphis on His mind in the same way. May He say the same. And should I not pity Memphis, the great city, in which there are probably more than a million persons who do not know their right from their left? The Lord is compassionate, and He transforms cities. That's why we need to pray Finally, a third reason, because our hearts become aligned with the Lord through prayer. It's going to be really hard for these Israelites to pray for the Babylonians over time and for the Lord not to change their hearts. As a matter of fact, prayer is the only way and one of the primary ways that the Lord brings us into alignment, not only with His mission, but in our hearts so that we're overflowing with compassion and mercy and grace, just like the Lord is described here in Jonah. I love what Andrew Murray had to say. He said this, that the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. Let me close with this story. Several years ago, Back when I was working on staff with Campus Outreach, we we sent staff to the University of Kentucky and in Eastern Kentucky, right outside of uh, Lexington. And uh, our staff started sharing their faith there, and and uh, it was really exciting to see all the people who came to Christ and all the people who were interested and, and that kind of thing. But one of the things that we noticed in the first couple of years there— is there was an inordinate amount of people who came to Christ, and they were all from the same county. Literally, over 20 people came to Christ from the same county. Many of them from different kinds of backgrounds. But as we started getting involved in these students' lives, and as they began to to trace back what was going on to their county, they found, eventually, a group of women who literally, for the last 20 years, would buy pictorial annuals of each of the high schools in the, in, the, in the county, and they would pray person by person, picture by picture on a weekly basis for 20 years, that their students would come to Christ. And you can almost see it unfolding literally. God, through their prayers, is preparing their hearts. They go to campus. God, through other prayers, preparing these laborers and and sharing the gospel, and God bringing about transformation in their hearts. The Lord responds to our prayers. So as we think about the question that I gave you earlier, if we can mobilize thousands of Christians into the city of Memphis for the sake of the kingdom over the next 20 years. What could they do that would really make a difference? I'll tell you one thing they could do is become resident sojourners in this city. I'll tell you another thing based on the passage here that we would seek their flourishing, seek their shalom with all of our hearts. And finally, that they would pray for the city and pray for their well-being. So I've got another question to close on. Where are we going to get, where where is the inspiration for such a rescue option? Where are we going to find the inspiration for this? It's in the gospel. What you see here in this passage, this is actually the same narrative of the gospel. This is exactly what the Lord has done for us. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ who came and became a resident sojourner on this earth for us. And then through his death and resurrection, as Ephesians 1 1 says, that we are now blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has poured out, lavished his shalom on us. He has shalomed us. And now, our Lord Jesus is at the Father's right hand. And what is he doing? He's interceding for us. This is the picture of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for giving us your gospel in such unique and colorful ways. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence But Lord, help us to to take advantage of this time, this season, to renew our relationship with you and to renew our mission to the city. And Lord, raise up thousands who will bring your shalom to our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.